Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your pastor, Philip Jackson. Before I get to the lesson, so we're, we're in a series where we're looking at the five levels of community within the church. Um, I have had a number of conversations about what's happening in Kentucky. And um, if you guys have been, like me, asking the question, what what is the sign of a true revival? And there are a lot of very smart people, a lot of people with uh, degrees and doctorates and letters after their name that have a lot more training than I do. Um, but one of the things that, that has come back to me over and over again, this isn't connected to our message, but I think it's important for us to understand the context of what's happening in our country. Um, we, have, we, on average, about every 50 years, there's been a movement of God in America. And um, the last time that that happened was in the late 1800s. So we are well overdue for a movement of God. Um, and inevitably, there is, there is one key component that never changes. Uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 7, um, Solomon is finishing the, finishing the temple. And God shows up in a powerful way. The Spirit of God descends, and uh, He descends in what appears to be a cloud. And there it is, it is so present, His Spirit is so present, that the worshipers, the worship leaders, and the priests have to leave the building because they, they can't breathe because it's just so heavy. And God speaks to Solomon in, the mo- in that moment whenever the, the temple is finally built. And um, He gives him some instruction. He gives him uh, some guidance. And uh, it says it's in Second Chronicles chapter seven, verses thirteen and fourteen. It says, um, well, starting in verse twelve, it says, "Then Yahweh appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name." humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. Then I will listen from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. The simple component is this, is that if we want to know what's true revival, if we want to know what is is a true movement of God, there will be a sincere desire for repentance. People will turn from their sin. Christ came to the earth so that we could know and have a relationship with God. So anything apart from that, that one key component uh, means that it's not a true revival. The things that I have seen coming out of Kentucky and the articles that I have read from godly men who I respect, everything seems to be legitimate. Everything seems to be legitimate that's happening in campuses all over the, all over the country. It seems like God is moving with young adults. But as you read articles and as you, as you, as you digest this and you, uh, you decompress all of the things that people are saying, look for that one key component. Are people turning from their sin, repenting of their sin, and are their lives changed? Because we cannot have an encounter with God without life change. That's really, really important. Okay, now here's what's going to happen, though. You need to keep your eyes open and your ears, your ears perked because there are going to be people who are false teachers who will go and they will try to appropriate this movement of God and they're going to say, you know what? Yes, we're going to take this revival back to this place and we're going to do these things. 
and they're going to try to use that to capitalize on their own gain. So be very careful. We are in a very exciting time, what God is doing uh, with young adults. But just like Paul tells Timothy, rightly divide the word of truth. What is true, what is not true. That key component of repentance is an unshakable sign that God is truly moving. If there's no repentance, there is no revival. Because the purpose of revival is to turn people to the Father. And without that, it's not real. So my prayer for you has been that we, that we would truly see God move, that we truly would see revival. But what that means, for us to see revival in our community, means that we've got to take our sin seriously. It means that we've got to be serious about our walk with Christ, to not just casually float from one event to the next event. We need to be serious about who we are as believers. Either this is true or it's not. That means that we need to have real conversations with each other about our holiness about where we are, what we're struggling with to move forward. So that leads into what we're going to talk about tonight. We're talking about the five levels of community within the church. Now, if you missed last week, I'll give you a quick recap. This, in essence, is a picture of what godly community looks like within the church. Everything begins with our abiding relationship with Jesus. We talked about this last week. If you haven't heard that lesson, I challenge you to go back to the podcast and listen to it or you can watch it on YouTube. Everything comes from our personal relationship with Christ. Now, this is modeled in Jesus' life and how he was able to, to actually live out what God has called him to live. The challenge is that a few of us ever find out what this actually means. We sit in church and we hear people say, read your Bible, study God's word, do what God tells you to do. But the challenge is that nobody teaches us what that looks like. It's hard. One of the first things that I ask people when I, when I ask them, after I've asked them if they have a Bible is, do you know what you're reading? Right? I'm not going to read William Shakespeare the same as I'm going to read Harry Potter. Right? Because they're separated by a couple hundred years. The same thing is true with the Bible. I can't read the Genesis account of God creating the world and read the Song of Solomon and read them the same way. Right? God's word doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. We've got to understand what that looks like. So our abiding relationship is where we actually do community with God. And it's from that that we have the strength and the community and the, and the real perspective on life to where we can pour into a couple of people. This is discipleship. This is Jesus' relationship with Peter, James, and John. We're going to talk about this tonight. Out of the, out of the relationship with Peter, James, and John, discipleship comes the 12. This is the example of the, of the disciples, a small group or a life group. From my abiding, I'm pursue, I, I take on the heart of Christ and I want to invest in other people. After I've invested in other people, I can't help but share. And so that, that means that I'm going to be a part of a small group, a community. We're going to hash out these issues of our life and we're going to work together to see what God has for us. And then outside of the level three community, our, our small group, then comes a Sunday school class. This is the, it's an example of the 70 or the 120 that Jesus sent out to do miracles in his name. These people experienced Jesus, but they didn't experience him like the 12 did. And they didn't experience him like Peter, James, and John did. And they sure didn't experience him like Jesus had with the Father. And then finally, the level five community. This is an example of big church. This is the, this is the feeding of the 5,000. This is a broad appeal for people to come into relationship with God. And from these things, from an from outpouring of a, an abiding relationship, I, I pursue discipleship. And from discipleship, I pursue a small group. And from a small group, I pursue a, a, a Sunday school class or a small group community. And then from there, I pour into my church. Now, here's the point. 
you, you're going to hear me say this a lot as we talk about this over the next several weeks. You may be abiding in Christ, and you may be in discipleship, and you may have your life group, and you think, I'm good. I am good. But ask this question. After Jesus called Peter, James, and John, and then we, when he called the other nine, where would, he, where would we be if none of this happened? Because the reality is, is that I, get, I draw strength here from my relationship with Christ. And then from there, I pour out that strength, that confidence into my discipleship relationships. And from there, I pour it into my small group. But it can't stop there. You think, well, I'm part of a life group. I don't need to be at Sunday school. I don't need to go to corporate worship. I've got my squad. I've got my community. But the problem is, that's not the heart of God. You see, the more that you receive from God, the more you're supposed to give away. If God has given you wisdom and insight into his word and who he is, that is meant to be shared. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about discipleship. As we did with last week, I've got a number of passages here. We typically don't do this type of study here at REACH, but um, given the, the, the subject, the topic that we're going through, um, we just have to take a survey of Scripture. Um, and I hope that you will check me in all these references, okay? I'm going to have some Scripture for you up on the, up on the screen like we did last week. Um, but it's important for you to understand and to rightly, rightly divide God's Word. Don't just take my word for it, but I want you to search these, th these things out. Going back to one of the things that I mentioned last week in Genesis 2, when God created the world, He looked at Adam in the garden. Adam had a perfect relationship with God. He had no sin. He had no corrupt uh, people around him. He had the ultimate community. He had three square meals a day. He had, a, he had a nice place to live. Everything was comfortable. And you know what? God looked at him and He said, it's not good. It's not good that he's alone. I'm going to make community for him. I'm going to make a helper for him. God if God recognizes our need for a community, that means that we are not only rebelling against him when we don't prioritize relationships, but we're also putting ourselves in danger. This is a challenge for us because peopling is hard. But understand that if God says that it's bad for you to be alone, it's bad for you to be alone. People don't realize the health effects of being lonely. It has the same toll on your body as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Eventually, you will die because you are alone. Some people throw their, their effort into work. Some people throw it into their career or maybe a pet. But the challenge is, is that if God said it, it's true. The first story that I think it's important for us to, to lay out here is, is how Jesus met Peter, James, and John. Turn over to John chapter 1. Now, if you go through and you read this account from all of the four Gospels, you will, a, a story will start to weave together. Now, beginning at verse 35 to verse 42, um, we're going to start to notice a little bit of a story here. I'll give you, I'll give you the context, and then we'll, we'll read the passage. So when we weave, all together, we weave together a harmony of the Gospels, all four Gospels, what we find out is that Jesus, as he's starting his ministry, his cousin, John the Baptist, is going around telling people that the day of the Lord is at hand. So he begins to tell them that the Messiah is coming. And eventually, John starts collecting disciples. And one of those people that he collects as a disciple is a man named Andrew. Andrew is a, is a fisherman by trade. And so Andrew begins to follow John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is, is baptizing people. 
And lo and behold, his cousin, Jesus, comes walking up. And John says in front of everybody, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Andrew hears that. Well, the next day, Jesus is baptized that day. And the next day, Jesus comes to the Sea of Galilee. And we find Andrew standing next to John the Baptist. And he, I did, in my sanctified imagination, I can hear Andrew standing next to him. And John, in amazement, he looks out and he sees Jesus coming to the crowd. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And Andrew hears his teacher say these words, and he says, I've got to go get my brother, Peter, Simon. So he runs to Simon, and he says, Simon, Simon, we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. So they rush over to meet him, and Jesus says, what y'all doing? They say, teacher, where are you staying? We want to come spend time with you. And Jesus invites them to come spend some time with him. Well, the next day, John and Andrew, or sorry, uh, Peter and Andrew, they go fishing with their cousins, James and John, the Sons of Thunder. I love that nickname. Man, that'd be cool to be known as the Sons of Thunder. Not the temper part, but that'd be cool. <laughs> um, but what's fascinating is that the next day, Peter, James, or yeah, Peter, James, John, and Andrew had been fishing all night, because back then you fished at night when the, when the fish would come to the surface of the water. They haven't caught anything. And uh, they finish fishing. They're cleaning their nets. They're on the shore. And the teacher comes. Jesus comes. And, and the crowd, beginning to know who he is, they start to crowd him. And he, they begin to push him into the water. And so Jesus is like getting his feet wet. And he turns around. And Peter and Andrew are right there. And he says, hey, boys, can I borrow your boat? So he gets in the boat, pushes off the shore a little ways, begins to teach the people. Well, after he's done teaching, he turns to Peter and he says, hey, can we go out into the deep water again? And Peter says, sure, Rabbi. Been fishing all night. Haven't caught anything. We'll go out there. We'll humor this. We'll humor this rabbi, this carpenter. So they push out into the water. And Jesus, I can just imagine him. He's standing at the bow of the boat. He's looking over in the water. He goes, we should throw the net in. Rabbi. We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. <laughs> yeah, I get that. But have you tried throwing the net on the other side of the boat? <sighs> Carpenter over here. Rabbi, we tried it. Just, just try. So they throw the net on the other side of the boat. And sure enough, fills full of fish. The, the boat jerks. They start pulling it in, and Andrew and Peter are trying their best, and the net starts to break. So they yell at their cousins, who are still on the shore cleaning their nets, and they, James, John, get over here, get over here quick. So they row or whatever they do to get over to them and help them gather the fish, <laughs> right? And then they drag them to the shore, and it's this massive row, massive catch of fish. And Peter, how many of you guys have seen the episode of The Chosen where this, this is recreated? Yeah, I love it. It's so great. Because Peter is just overwhelmed. And he says, he says, don't look at me. Don't look at me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Don't look at me. And Jesus, he leans down and he says, Peter, follow me and I'll teach you to catch people. Jesus had a very particular relationship with Peter, James, and John. Look at these verses in Scripture. Beginning in verse 35, to verse 42. 
On the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, Cephas, which is translated Peter. Well, fast forward many, many years. We find Jesus has been done his ministry. He has, has uh, made a profound impact on the world. And he's been crucified. And Jesus has appeared to the disciples after he is dead and resurrected a couple of times. But the last time, the third time, um, he has a very particular way that he wants to reveal himself. Turn, turn to the end of the book of John. It's interesting to me that John, who defines himself as the, as the disciple that Jesus loved, that's the thing that he defines himself as, is just someone who, who was loved by Jesus. He's not making a statement about him being more important than anybody else. He just said, the most significant thing about me is that I am loved by Jesus. I love that. John is the only one, the only gospel that's bookended by the exact same miracle. Check this out. Beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples of the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's, Peter, James, that's James and John, the two, the two others uh, of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. They went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Man, we set the stage. Verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. Let me translate that in today's language. They, all they see is a rabbi on the beach. They can tell he's a rabbi because he's wearing the rabbi clothes. They've been fishing all night. They're all tired. They haven't caught anything. Hey, guys. How was the fishing last night? It sucked. Nothing. Zero. Nada. Get this question, verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. It's the same question. Hey, have you guys tried throwing the net on the other side of the boat? How many of you all know that doesn't really matter? Right? Jesus has a sense of humor. I don't care what you say. <laughs> End of verse 6. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Check this out. Verse 7. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. This can only be one other person. This is an inside joke. He knows what's going on. Jesus didn't have to say, Hey guys, it's Jesus. Come over here and see me. So when, Pete, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, he put his gar outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he cast himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in, the, came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits away, dragging the net full of fish. 
here's the thing about Peter, James, and John, is that Jesus had a very special relationship with them, so much so that they had these inside jokes almost with God. Think about Jesus' motives here, though. What What did he do? He intentionally invited these three men into his life, into the most intimate parts of his life. They were hungry. I have noticed something about discipleship. That to be a disciple maker, you must be aware of the people that God sends you. But to be a disciple, you also have to be aware of the opportunities to learn. As soon as Andrew and Peter heard that Jesus was the Messiah, they went and they asked to follow him. You may be asking yourself, well, how in the world do I start with discipleship? How in the world do I start with mentorship? Well, it's pretty simple. You see a person who's chasing Jesus, and you just ask to spend time with them. It's that simple. Discipleship is caught, not taught, just like these fish. Discipleship is caught, not taught. A disciple is hungry to pursue God. Now, what does this mean? How does this all fit together? What, what does discipleship even have to do with the gospel? Because I thought it was just all about, all about just, you know, loving God and loving people. Well, turn over to Matthew chapter 28. Let's see what Jesus actually told us to do. I might step on some toes here whenever I quote this passage, but, you know, it is important for us to define things as they are. Beginning in verse 16, Jesus is... is uh, appearing to the disciples again. This is before he ascended into heaven. And he gives them what we call the Great Commission. And he gives them some very specific instructions. And it says this. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, this is verse 16, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. What did Jesus tell them to do? Go and make converts? Did he tell them to uh, go on a mission trip? What did he tell them to make? Disciples. Okay. What does that mean? (laughs) Go make disciples. Go make Disciples, reproduce yourself. Jesus is saying, hey, you have spent a lot of time with me. I want you to go reproduce yourself. I want, to do, I want you to do for others what, you, what I have done for you. But here's the question. What is discipleship and how do we actually create disciples? 1 Corinthians says this. It says who we are disciples of. Are we disciples of Jesus or are we disciples of somebody else? Have you ever asked that question? Generally, we've, we've boiled discipleship down to this generic definition. Disciple just means my, discipleship just means me growing in my knowledge of God. Right? But is that what it really is? Is discipleship watching and living with someone so that you absorb their attributes and their godliness as you both chase Jesus together? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 says this, it says, whether, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. 
be imitators of me, just as I also uh, am of Christ. Something that's interest, that, that, is, that is important for us to understand is that we are called to be an example so that others can follow Christ through our example. Here's what that means. Have you guys, um, have you ever played those games? There was a really, really popular one on the Wii a long time ago um, where you have to like watch the person on the screen and you've got to mimic their dance moves, right? Sure. <laughs> Just dance, sure. Um, you know, when you started, when you, when you first put that game and you first turned it on and it, and it says, do this, do this dance, Without anybody to follow, you're kind of out of luck, aren't you? Without somebody to, to mimic what they're doing, right? Have you guys ever watched a, uh, a baby or a toddler act out the same way that their parents are at home? It's kind of amusing because you, 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 the children are the window into the family, right? If you meet that little one, they're just a cute little angel, but they cuss like a sailor? <laughs> Where did they pick that up? Probably mom and dad, right? But if you meet a little one and they are confident and they know who they are and they are happy and they're kind, where'd they pick that up? They're loved at home. Same thing is true. That's what Paul is saying here is that you imitate me as I imitate Christ. The model of discipleship is that as I chase Jesus, those who are less experienced than me, they follow me and they mimic my movements. There have been moments in my life with my mentors that have discipled me over the years that I don't even know what to do. I don't understand why we're doing it, but I just mimic what they do until I finally realize, oh, oh, I should do this on my own. Then I start to realize it. You guys have heard my story about Pastor Nick. We were driving back from uh, Norman one time. And normally I ask people, you know, I'm interested to find out about people, so I ask questions, right? So I asked him, one of my favorites, what do you do for fun? His, Pastor Nick is uh, 70, he's in his early 70s. Normally I get answers like, I go hunting, I go fishing, I go to a ball game, he loves OU football, so that's what I'm thinking I'm going to get, right? You know what this guy has the nerve to tell me? I like spending time with my wife. <laughs> I felt like half an inch tall. <laughs> what do you mean you like spending time with your wife? I mean, I love my wife. I like spending time with my wife. But why would you say something like that to me? And it's just the two of us in the truck. <laughs> Discipleship is caught. It's not taught. You know what? That started a dialogue in my mind. What do I do for fun? Do I chase what I want or do I chase what God wants? Do I love my wife because I enjoy loving my wife? Do I disciple because I enjoy discipling, making disciples? Does, is my heart God's heart? Or am I building my own kingdom and just kind of collecting things along the way and decorating my life? Paul tells Timothy to take the things that he's learned from him and entrust them to other men who can teach others also. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he lays out a recipe for us. He says, You therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who are able to teach others also. 
Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier, soldier is active, in active service entangles himself with the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to, ought to be, first, uh, be the first to receive his share of the crops. Understand what I say, for the Lord will give you insight in everything. Here's the point, is that we are called to pursue godliness, but Scripture tells us that with, that, that cannot happen without the context of community. It can't happen without the context of discipleship. You will not chase Jesus outside of, outside of community and find the fullness of what God has for you. We are all disciples of Christ by living according to what he commanded, but we can't take that out of context. We can't take the Great Commission and say, okay, yes, I'm going to go and make disciples myself. Jesus said that to the disciples. He didn't say that to you. Now, we have a responsibility to go make disciples because that's what he commanded us to do. But understand, he didn't say, Philip Jackson in 2023, go and make disciples. The biblical model is the truth of the gospel is played out in the real lives of real people. And that has passed from one person to another for thousands of years, and now here you sit. You are here because someone modeled Jesus for someone younger than them. They found Jesus because someone had modeled it for them. The picture in the gospel and also in all through scripture is that you have an experienced person chasing God, and they have a, they have a shadow. Discipleship passes through the life and experience of older believers by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Godliness and discipleship does not happen apart from godly community. It's through the context of watching our older siblings in the faith that we know how to face our problems and face the world. Man. Well, if we're disciples of others, older believers, and we're disciples of Christ... We also means that we are called to share our life and to learn from one another. Turn over to Galatians chapter 6. If you're unfamiliar with Galatians, I love this book. Basically, Galatia is a region in, in, uh, in Europe at the time. This is like an unsettled area. So, when he, so he's writing a letter to the Galatians. He, think of it as Paul is writing a letter to the rednecks. In fact, he says, you foolish Galatians, you stupid rednecks, is what he's saying. And the whole premise of this is these, these people in Galatia, the churches in Galatia, they're, they are saying that they want to be godly, but uh, they, they never get outside of, they, they can't get out of their own way. And so they're pursuing fleshly things, but they're, experiencing, they're expecting spiritual results. And so he's telling them, don't be dumb. Don't pursue the flesh, pursue the spirit. Well, in Galatians chapter 6, the end of this letter, he gives us some insight. He says, beginning in verse 6, he says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. He says, let him who is taught the word share in all things with him who teaches. We're called to share life and to learn from one another. 
Discipleship is caught. It's not taught. It's, some, it's not something extra to your life. It's something you invite someone to be part of what you're doing already. You might think, man, I don't have time for an extra coffee. I don't have time for an extra uh, tropical smoothie. I don't have time for another extra thing on my plate, right? My, my schedule's busy. I got so much stuff to do. I got so much stuff going on. Discipleship isn't complicated. Discipleship is, hey, I've got to go run some errands. You want to go with me? Hey, I'm going to go study at Starbucks. You want to come sit with me? Hey, I'm going to, go, I'm going to, I'm going to run to Norman to have lunch with my buddy. Hey, you want to come with me? And on the way back, you drop a bomb like you should love your wife. <laughs> Discipleship means we share with our teachers. We share life with our teachers. It's not complicated. It's simple. Well, Jesus, he understood this, and he sent the disciples out in pairs, for, uh, pairs of two for ministry. In Mark chapter 6, he says, it says, And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Luke chapter 10, he says, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. We're meant to do life together in pairs. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if, they, if, for if they fall, one will fall, lift up his companion. But woe to him who is, who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Discipleship is simple. It's caught. It's not taught. There is strength in discipleship. But you know, through the, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, he sent out the apostles to do, to do work and to prepare the way for him. This happened all through Scripture. Think about the great, the great pairs that God put together. He put together uh, Moses and Joshua. He put together um, Elijah and Elisha. He put together Barnabas and Saul. He put together Peter and John. He put together uh, Barnabas and uh, or Paul and, and Silas. He put together Paul, Timothy, and John Mark. He put together Silas and Timothy. All of these are illustrations that, that this is the model of what life looks like. The Holy Spirit says, I want you to go and I want you to do work, but you notice something here. He doesn't send them alone. So ask this question of yourself. God's called you to something? Do you feel like he's called you to something alone? Is that what Scripture teaches us? Or does Scripture teach us that God, is, God has someone to go with you? Remember, God's will is that you have community. But if you think that you are the exception, I'm sorry, you're not living biblically. We have to live in community. Some rapid-fire things here I want you to see. That Jesus modeled this intimate community in his relationship with Peter, James, and John. Notice something. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls them to follow first. The discipler takes initiative. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is transfigured on the mount. God literally pulls the veil back away from Jesus, his flesh, so that they can see who he truly is, and they're blinded in the experience. The discipler invites their followers to see God move in their life. Mark, Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14, Jesus prays before his death and he asks them for his help. We looked at that last week. The discipler is vulnerable in moments and he asks for them to help him. 
Now, if Jesus asks for help, I don't know about you, I'm going to need help with my life. Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare for Passover in Luke chapter 22. The discipler gives their followers responsibilities in a portion of their ministry. Do you guys have any idea how hard it is to turn over control of things? In ministry, in life, in leadership? One of the things that God has put on my heart very strongly is to reproduce leaders and teachers. That meant that at one point in this ministry, I had to reconcile to myself, someone else is going to teach besides me. And you know what? I had to understand that God is the one who's in charge, not me. That means that people like Nick and people like Taylor and people like Haley and people like Roya and the, all of these people, God has given us opportunity to learn and to teach. Many of you have taught at our, at our retreats. That's because God has given us a charge to give people responsibility of their ministry. We've got a, a number of teams that you can serve on here at Reach. Peter and John recognize Jesus after his resurrection. The disciples know the heart of their discipler because they have spent time with him. Think about that. They're fishing in a boat. All they know is this rabbi on the shore just said, cast the net on the other side of the boat and it fills with fish. It can only be one other person. They knew his heart. Jesus gives John responsibility over his mother at the cross in John chapter 19. Disciples allow their disciples into their personal lives and relationships. If you spend time with me, if you, if you, if you do life with me, there is a very good chance you're going to end up in my house. Very good chance. Eating food at my table. Because that's important to me. Discipleship is about letting people into the intimate parts of your life. Spiritual growth comes from the Spirit. God uses us collectively to manifest the gospel in the lives of others. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says this. They're all bent out of shape about, oh, well, I'm a follower of Paul, or I'm a follower of Apollos, or I was, I was discipled by Jesus. JC, the OG, Right? Paul writes him a letter. He says, listen, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Here's the thing I want you to understand is that no one's exempt from this. Discipleship is caught, not taught. I hope you picked that up tonight. Here's some challenges for you. Jesus called his disciples to follow him first. The question is, are you looking for ways to help others? Are you actually looking for people to disciple? Are you yourself being discipled? The discipler invites his followers to see God moving in his life. Are you being transparent? Or are you being fake with the people that you meet with, if you're meeting with anybody? Are you being real? Do your disciples know what's happening in your life? Can you actually tell them? I know we do a lot of quizzing. Like, hey, tell me what God's doing. You're like, what are you reading in his word? Can you reciprocate that answer? Can you actually give the truth of what's happening in your life? Are you afraid to let down that, that, that perfect mask, that know everything? I was talking, we were talking to Brittany earlier, right? You're intimidated when people ask you questions that you may not know the answers to theologically. Three magic words. I don't know. I don't know. Some of you have asked me questions that I have no clue what the answers are. And you know what? If I try to explain it to you because I want to feel smart or look smart, I'm being an idiot. I'm doing you a disservice. Because you think that everybody always has to have an answer. I don't know. We'll do our best to answer these questions. But I want to be transparent in how I live my life and how what God's doing in my life. Jesus prayed before his death and he was vulnerable and he allowed his followers to share in his weakness, his weak moments. 
Do you allow people to see your weaknesses in your life? I hate crying in front of people. Hate it. But some of you have seen me cry. And not like, uh, like <laughs> that kind of cry, like ugly cry. Do you allow people into your life to see you? Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare the Passover. Do you trust the Holy Spirit enough to give others responsibility and ownership of a portion of your ministry? Man, this hits me right now. God, you don't understand. I pour my life into these people. Are you sure? You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. What makes me think that he can do anything without me? Peter and John recognize Jesus after his resurrection in John chapter 21. Disciples know the heart of their discipler because they've spent quantity of time with them. If you meet with people, are you making them a priority? I've fallen prey to this. Man, buddy, I'm sorry I can't meet today. Man, I'm sorry I can't meet today. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit starts digging in my heart. Because what if my mentors canceled on me repeatedly when I needed them. If Jesus is supposed to be the model, that means that I need to be sure that I'm aware that I, that I am intentional with my time. Now, here's something that's important for you to understand. Did Jesus discriminate against people? Did he give them measured amounts of time? Absolutely. Absolutely he did. This was his number one priority. Peter, James, and John were his second priority. The nine were his third priority. The 70 were his fourth priority. The, the feeding of the 5,000. When they came to him and they said, hey, Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to make you the king. Jesus calls them out. He says, you know what? You didn't want me because you wanted a revival. You came to me because you wanted full bellies. He said, tell you what, why don't you drink my blood and eat my flesh? Defile yourselves right now. And of course, they're, oh, how, how dare I? And they left. And what does Jesus do? He's hot. He turns to Peter, James, and John, and he goes, you guys going to leave too? But they knew his heart. What did Peter say? Where can we go? Get the words of life. Right? Jesus absolutely discriminated. That means that when it comes time for the people that I've let into my life, when people let you into their lives as your, disciple, as your disciplers, cherish that time and understand that they are following the will of God by allowing you into their life. Because not everybody is, is, has been told to spend early precious time away from their family to spend it with you. Lastly, Jesus gives John the responsibility for his mother at the cross in John, 5, John 19. The question is, do you know your disciples well enough to give them something precious to you? And do they know you well enough to take good care of it? Letting people into your life through discipleship is incredibly difficult because it feels like it's totally foreign and, and alien to you. But the reality is this, is that there is something sweet about discipleship. I don't know all the answers, but I do spend time with the one who does. The process is very simple. It's difficult, but it's very simple. It's what discipleship looks like. You're a couple of steps ahead of someone else. 
You take that person and you set them next to Jesus. You teach them how to process the issues of their life through God's word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And you let them watch you. You give them quantity time with you. And are you going to mess it up? 100%. Are you going to put your foot in your mouth? Absolutely. But here's the simple truth. Is that God will teach you more by being watched about him than anything else. Because the reality is this, is that if, that if we are simply reading our Bibles and just, okay, that's great, God, thank you so much, bless me for this day, and then we walk and do our thing, we're never confronted with the reality of how we're living, our lives will never, never change. If you don't know what it's like to be in discipleship, come talk to me. If you're like, man, PJ, this is weird. I've never heard of this before. Discipleship is not about you just getting a generic education in God's Word. Discipleship is about learning how to live by watching an older believer walk a couple of steps ahead of you. If you are discipling someone, do it intentionally. If you think that you're just the smartest person in the room and you never say, I don't know, you are not living here. You're doing it on your own. And you know what? You're going to bear incredible responsibility for how you lead people. Do not do it lightly. But if you are abiding, and you are being poured into, but you are not pouring out, shame on you. Shame on you to take the richness of someone's life, the sweetness of a relationship with God, and the transparency of someone who's pouring into you, and you're not sharing that? Shame on you. God has given us these gifts of relationships and sweetness with him so that we can pour ourselves out to others, so that we can model to them what has been done for us. I am the product, not just of God's work in my life, but of men who have said on purpose, Philip, come and do life with me. If you want to know what God has for you, learn to be poured out. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.